situation we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and with me, as usual this week, are my co-hosts, uh, what's your name? Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. Uh, we have Harrison Keeley. Hello. Corey Schink. Yeah, that's right. And Carolyn McCallum. Hello. So, first of all, get the particulars out of the way, which is... Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Yeah. Yay. So, yay. Where's the... Hang on. There you go. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. More or less 15 years today since uh, the first rudimentary, and we have to stress rudimentary, South Page. Uh, was published. It was very uh, quaint. Yeah, way back in two, it was quaint. Yeah, people can still access it, right? From, yeah, from the site. Yeah, white oh, text, yeah. white text, and a black background. It was beautiful. Um, <laughs> if if a bit if a bit hard on the eyes. Um, you could, were you involved? You c- couldn't read too much. Yeah. Were you working on it then? Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was way back in two thousand two. Seems like. Seems like about 15 years ago or so. 15, yeah. 15 a lifetime years. years. A lifetime of years. Well, actually, no. But a quarter of a lifetime. Depending on how long you live. Anyway. I'm well, not, in internet years, that's ancient. It's ancient. It was way back when the internet was only a baby. And it really should have been <laughs> strangled in its crib. No. No. No, we're joking. We're joking. I mean, the internet has done a lot. It's full of nonsense, of course, uh, in, in many places. Um, but... It has allowed us to do so many things in terms of uh, communicating with people and getting people together, so we can't we can't beat up too much on the internet. Um, but yeah, we've been doing it for 15 years, and it's gone through a lot of different kind of incarnations over that over that time, and it might go through a few more, uh, depending on how long the work lasts. But um, yeah, so 15 years today. Anyway, um, this week on the show, we are going to talk about major events from the past week. If you've read the description, which you may or may not have, uh, we're going to be talking about the events in London, uh, which were, what, three days ago now? Three days? 22nd? Um, Events you may not have heard about in Crimea, Ukraine, Black Sea area, also uh, continuing uh, madness in Syria, and a few other events. associated in one way or another, Trump, um, European politics, that kind of thing. So, what do we kick off with, folks? Anybody got a hot topic? London. Well, yeah. London. What can you say about London? Not a lot. Apologies to any Londoners listening, but um, you have a lot to... 
You have a lot to... Uh, a lot of explaining to do. A lot of explaining to do. Yeah, there you go. Um, no. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, just one more. It seems to be a hallmark these days. It's, it's you know, what used to be... We started off with... Or ter- terrorism, such as it is, used to be, you know, bombings and shootings and stuff. But now it's uh, it's almost got... There have been quite a few of them in, in very recent years, and it's got to the point where... It's a standard operating procedure now to to for some crazy person to jump in a car and knock down a bunch of people and mm-hmm. then maybe or maybe not do something else if if he can he, if he can actually yeah. manage to do it. But uh, well, what's going on where the opening act of quote unquote Islamic terrorism? Let's pretty much call it the opening act. It wasn't exactly, but the opening act is but they can hijack four planes and take down two of the largest skyscrapers on planet Earth. Yeah. And here the latest act is, well, we'll hijack a car and just drive it really fast for about 60 meters. Yeah, they've fallen pretty low. Um, it's what I've do, come down. Do terrorists, maybe they devolve as opposed to evolve. Um, or maybe there's a shortage of weapons. Maybe there aren't enough guns well, and ammo going on out there. Well, yeah, it's a kind of interesting yeah. point that... Uh, it's an interesting point that the... Um, you know the, hot, the the defining moment of of Islamic terrorism was this spectacular major. Uh, many said, many at the time and afterwards said, state sponsored in some way because it had to be mm-hmm. because of the nature of it uh, attack on nine eleven, where you had these people. I mean, really, I mean, when you think about any organization being able to infiltrate several airports, major airports of another major country. In fact, at the time the most powerful, richest country in the world, infiltrate their airports, uh, get on to four planes, commandeer the four planes, and then successfully fly them into kind of the iconic buildings uh, of, of of that major world power, the, the, the preeminent world power, the USA, into the World Trade Center towers. Including the Pentagon. And the Pentagon, the center of, mm. U, of U.S. Um, defense and, and, and military prowess. Um from I mean that's pretty spectacular, and then what happened? You know how did how do you square that with the same types of organizations of crazy jihadis <coughs> operating out of a spider hole somewhere or a cave somewhere? Being able mm-hmm. to do that to what you have today, as Neil was just saying, which is these pathetic kind of opportunistic, like go to a you go to a car rental place, rent a car, and then just drive it down the street and knock down as many people as you can, and then crash the car. That's it. That's a long way from 9-11. So what happened? It kind of raises some questions, maybe, about uh, the authenticity of of 9-11 as, a, as an Islamic terror attack, i.e. a bunch of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, worked-up jihadis being able to do that. Anyway, it's just speculation, but yeah. Um, so this guy drives it down the street. He's, you know, I mean, it's just boring at this point. It's, he's got the typical background that you expect in these situations, uh, or has happened on many occasions in these supposed terror attacks. Were, oh, one unusual thing about this guy is that he was a lot older. He was right, 52. He was, Usually right. it's some 23 year old guy who's got no job and no education and right. he's on the internet. And, and so this guy did not fit the profile, which was, which was a little strange. Yeah. In terms of, yeah, in terms of his age, he didn't fit the profile, but his background being just this kind of, uh, you know, 
distracted, no, kind of a, no life, kind of a low life kind of person. Had been up for kind of you know in front of courts before for assault and battery or GBH grievous bodily harm and stuff like that, and possessing mm-hmm. you know illegal weapons, that kind of thing, guns, knives, kind of stuff, and just a bit of a a ne'er do well, as they say. And he, uh, that, that's the background. That's the background of a lot of these people, just kind of lower class, I suppose, or maybe not lower class necessarily, but you know. Um, not really holding down jobs and having run into the law and then disturbed mm-hmm. in some way or other, and then they just uh, and of course that fits the profile in a certain sense because you have to be you have to be a bit yeah. disturbed and have have a bit of a violent background, I suppose, to do something like this, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but anyway, this guy comes, so he hires a car, rents a car, mm, drives it down Westminster Bridge, mounts the curb on uh, the sidewalk, mows down about ten people or so. Kills two of them, drives on past, round the corner, past the side of the House of Parliament, crashes into the railings at the front, jumps out. Some woman approaches him and he just shouts at her, get away, stay back or something. And he walks on into the kind of garden area at the front of the House of Parliament there through the gates. And there's usually like two policemen there. And I don't know where the other one was, but one of them was there. And these guys are unarmed for some reason, which is bizarre. In uh, militarised London, uh, or security up the wazoo london basically cameras everywhere and policemen everywhere especially in the current climate so he walks in supposedly stabs his police officer and then is shot by the by i think it was a bodyguard of one of the politicians actually i think that was happened to be around at the time because a politician who was fated as the guy who kind of went to hero politician ran in the direction of the danger while everybody else was being you know i mean you, know, you have to question that narrative as well but anyway Apparently it was his plainclothes bodyguard or plainclothes policeman of some description shot this guy. And and then it was over to you, media. Take it away. It reminds me of Ottawa, <clears throat> where a guy drives up really fast to the mm. House of Parliament in Canada, mm. um, mm-hmm. abandons the car on the steps or mm. crashes into something maybe, runs out straight into one of the entrances like mm. this, and then he's taken out Apparently, well, he got into the by, he, he like got into a the bodyguard building. of. Well, he got into the he got into the building, like in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Yes, he actually got into the building and went down the hallway, and then there was a kind of like a Western style shootout with the. I think he's called the Master at Arms or something like that. He's basically yeah, it's a it's government a title in the, the title within the Parliament. Uh, but the, yeah, I wrote an article on that about that at the time, and this was this was in, in Ottawa. It was the the big news was this shootout with this guy. Uh, the, the, he's like a kind of like a Speaker of the House in some, of some description or. Whatever he's some position inside the parliament, and he was there, and he had a gun on him for some reason, and there was a kind of shootout between him and this <clears throat> this terrorist guy inside the kind of hallways, you know. So it's like a long hallway, marbled hallway with alcoves on each side, with busts of famous politicians or something. And uh, down the end or something, <laughs> the guy was the terrorist guy was hiding in one of these alcoves, and they were kind of sniping at each other. Uh, so this master at arms uh, Canadian politician guy mm, apparently ran down and kind of Jason Bourne style you know dived sideways and round you know so he could see him you know and when he came into view then he pew pew shot him and shot him dead and the media afterwards showed the um, showed for dramatic effect showed the bullet holes in the wall in this alcove uh, above a plaque there was a plaque on the wall, and there was, they showed some bullet holes, like a series of bullet holes, that were kind of around this plaque or near this plaque, as as where this happened. And this was, 
officially this is where it happened and this was testified to this is this is where this dramatic shootout happened <laughs> and I wrote a little article on it, and it wasn't much more at the time uh, other than pointing out using screenshots from uh, Google Street View and I think this happened in 2000 maybe 14 or something like that or was it 15 maybe was that anyway two three years ago two three years ago but anyway I, I used screenshots from Google Street View from 2011, so about two or three years previously, showing that alcove because you could walk into this kind of corridor in the Ottawa Parliament building um, and see what what's inside. You know, Google Street View does that inside buildings in a lot of places. And <laughs> I just took some sc- screenshots from 2011 and the stamp on Google. And this was only a few days afterwards because it, so it wouldn't have been updated or anything. It probably was from 2011, uh, the Google Street View images, and it showed all of those bullet holes whether or not they were perhaps not bullet holes or maybe they were bullet holes from the Second World War or something, or I don't know, Canada wasn't really involved in the Second World War, but it, maybe there were bullet holes, maybe they weren't. But the point is, these marks on the wall that they were saying were the bullet holes from the shootout, from the terrorist attack, were there in 2011. Right. Uh-uh. Time-traveling terrorists. <laughs> well, yeah. No. Um, and that, you know, so the imagery... Talking of imagery around terror attacks and looking at images, it's kind of sometimes, not always, but it's quite useful to really scrutinize the, the imagery and sometimes, because sometimes some anomalous things will pop up. And that was the case with this Westminster uh, car terror attack um, in that there was a video uh, of, I was... At the time when I was reading about it, as it was just after, as it was just after it happened, and as the, the aftermath was playing out, I was watching the news and stuff, and I was wondering if there was going to be any video of this because I knew that that area around Parliament, Big Ben, and um, Westminster area was like the rest of London, like most of the rest of inner inner city London was quite heavily is quite heavily um, co- covered by CCTV cameras. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, well, there's got to be there's got to be some, uh, but then I thought, well, no, usually in these situations there's something wrong with the CCTV cameras or there's no footage ever comes out. And actually when I looked it up, I saw that last September, Westminster City Council had voted on closing or shutting down all the CCTV cameras as a cost-saving measure. It was going to save them £1 million a year, apparently. And that's how many CCTV cameras they have. And Westminster City Council isn't a big area because you know London is broken up into quite small little city council areas, you know. It was going to save them one million a year to stop running these cameras. So apparently they were shut down last September. So then I was like, oh, that's convenient. So there's not going to be any CCTV camera footage of this. Of all the places in and the a, city, of, in London. And a, yeah. Well, around Parliament. They voted yeah. last September, supposedly, to shut down the CCTV camera footage around the centre of power, basically, this, which would be obviously, if you've... I mean, this who is are the these people in MI5 who are, who are fighting this war on, on Islamic terrorism and, and defending... British people against the threat of Islamic terrorism when they don't consider that a primary target for any jihadis would be parliament or iconic buildings like, like you know, like the World Trade Center Towers? Well, probably an iconic building of similar stature in, in London would be Big Ben. Mm. Um, I mean, v, v for Vendetta, uh, the movie, V blew it up, you know. So if they watch V for Vendetta, they should have that down on their top ten list of things that might be blown up by jihadis, you know? They've pretty much banned any form of protest from taking place. Around there. Around there. Yeah. So wouldn't they surely have 
more cameras than ever and the best of the kind. Right, yeah. Because it's available yeah. there. They don't want anybody near it. It's a very sensitive place. There's where all the, the seat of power. It's where all the politicians come and go. If any jihadi wanted to... You know, but maybe they've just decided that these jihadis, for some reason, just want to kill ordinary people. They're not interested in the people who actually uh, pass the laws or who pass the laws that fund the... Uh, you know, the British military or European militaries or American militaries to actually go and bomb, bomb the jihadis. You don't want to attack those people. You want to attack ordinary people, supposedly. But anyway, the, so they shut it off so there was no CCTV cameras. But then I was thinking, you know, everybody's got a smartphone. There's got to be, there's got to be somebody, you know, curious enough mm-hmm. to have, certainly they would have had their phone on at the time. How long does it take you to kind of switch it over to video and, at least get some footage of this car doing this ridiculous thing, you know. Um, this this is kind of brutal thing along Westminster Bridge, but there weren't really any of that. I saw a few of, af- of the aftermath. And then, kind of in the evening, about 10 p.m. or so, I was looking at, there's a BBC Home Affairs correspondent, correspondent called, I can't remember his first name, Kaskihani, I think his surname is. And on his Twitter feed, he was talk- he was kind of tweeting about it. And I saw a video, a grainy video, low resolution type of thing, as if it was zoomed in, of the bridge, from the air, apparently, that's what it looked like, mm-hmm. of the bridge from and the car. From very high up. From, from high up and the car travelling along the bridge. And you could see more or less that a car was travelling along and see the, the woman who was knocked over the bridge into the river, you could see the kind of splash in the river. It wasn't very good quality, but you could see, yeah, that looks like footage of what happened. Um, but then he deleted it. But luckily I had downloaded it. So I uploaded the video to YouTube because I, um, uh, previously I'd checked on YouTube. I wasn't going to upload. The only reason I uploaded it to YouTube was because I checked on YouTube thinking it must be there somewhere. And it wasn't anywhere. I couldn't see any footage saying anything about Westminster, Westminster attack car, you know. Um, so I uploaded it to our SAT, our SAT uh, YouTube account. And got like, I think it has about 250,000 views or something. Or it got about 150,000 views in the first day. Because it was really the only one that was there, and it was the next day, the next morning, that um, that it started appearing on various news sites, the same footage. But that morning, we were contacted by two AP journalists, one after the other, asking about where we had got it and if it was ours, because maybe they wanted, they thought it was. I mean, I was laughing at the at the question, you know, is this your footage? And I'm like, yeah, I was in my uh, helicopter. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, our, our, our uh, local correspondent, you know, yeah. one of our large yeah. news bureau folk, just yeah. happened to be there. Happened to be there in his helicopter, uh, <laughs> taking some footage of Westminster Bridge at that time. And yeah, it's our, no, so I said, no, it's not ours, it's probably, um, I said, the only thing I can think of is that it's maybe from some, and this is before I had I actually looked at where it was and tried to figure out where the, the camera might have been. I just said, well, it, maybe CCTV footage of you know, from somewhere. Um, uh, so it might be belong to one of the London councils, so you can, you know, and the guy wrote back to me pretty quickly and said, no, I checked and it's not, it doesn't belong to any London Borough Council. Uh, you know, it, it's not from none of their cameras. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's what made me think, well, then where did this come from? So then I started looking at kind of Google Maps and looking at where it might have come from and the only place it could have come from, it seems to me anyway, certainly if you look at it, it was up high, Unless it was in a helicopter above the, above the Thames, which I suppose it might have been, but 
then you'd think they'd probably have better quality cameras or they might have flat flown, but I don't know. It looked to me like when I did a bit of investigation, as I wrote in the article, was that it was up in this uh, Millbank Tower, which is a tower more or less right behind MI5 headquarters along the banks of the Thames. And it houses the World Bank and a bunch of different other organisations, including RTUK, have offices there. And at the very top, there's a restaurant with kind of panoramic windows. And again, with the help of Google Street View, I was able to you know, look from inside that restaurant at the top called Altitude 360. And I could zoom in a little bit with the Google Street View, but not, not very much. So I just took a screen grab and then I zoomed it in even more with a photo editing uh, program software. And I pretty much was able to get exactly the same frame uh, as the video frame uh, showed. So exactly the same perspective, more or less the same altitude, I mean, just with an extra zoom. So it suggested to me, anyway, strongly enough, that somebody in that restaurant uh, on a grey Wednesday afternoon at about, what was it, 2.30 in the afternoon, kind of very cloudy grey, was filming Westminster Bridge right at the time. With a tripod, because it's still still footage. Right, yeah, there's no, there's no shaking. Yeah. So it's not someone holding up their phone suddenly after right. seeing it start. It's right. already trained on that bridge. Right, there's no no shaking, no movement. It's just a still saw, uh, static camera footage. So someone on a tripod had set up a camera and was filming Westminster Bridge, Westminster Bridge in, on a really crappy day in, on the 22nd of March. And as far as I know, no one has come forward to say who owns it. Although it's been spread around an awful lot. Um, so I, th- I suppose it's possible, theoretically possible, that someone was up there. Of course, when you're up there, you're going to be maybe taking pictures out of the window or you know, filming something, but I, su- I well, suppose it's plausible. This goes back to... But it's a coincidence, for sure. Yeah, well, it might not be a coincidence if there was tons of footage. You think of a densely populated place like London... Chances are people have smartphones out, especially tourists going along there to see Houses of Parliament. But there's nothing except for this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so the plausible argument is, well, someone just happened to be up there visiting at the restaurant. Maybe they don't even work mm-hmm. there. They're just eating, dining, mm-hmm. taking some photos after. Mm-hmm. Well, fine, it should be one among many views catching something mm-hmm. right before, during, after. Instead, it's like the only footage. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if you look at the buildings around, there's not really any high buildings uh, around. And in fact, that one has got to be maybe, I don't know, it's probably maybe three quarters of a mile away, at least half a mile away from the bridge. Um, and there aren't many tall buildings that could have captured that kind of footage or or, um, or even, you know, uh, similar footage that would have actually seen what was going on, you know, from that angle, because it's on a bridge over a river, right? So um, unless you're... Uh, you know, on the riverbank, on a fairly tall building that can look down, you're going to be obscured by trees or whatever. You know, most of the other buildings are obscured by trees, or they're just not tall enough to get that kind of a shot. And of course, um, people on the bridge they would have been, you know, you wouldn't known they were on the bridge. Basically, the point is that there's no real building any buildings anywhere else around that that could have filmed uh, Westminster Bridge in in that way from you know from a distance, even unless they were like, unless they were super. Maybe, maybe three miles away or something like that. But in terms of the relative close proximity, if you just do a 360 around Westminster Bridge, the only tall buildings, tall enough buildings, in theory it could have been at the top of the MI5 building 
or at, on the top of Parliament itself, but that would have been a bit too close. Mm. MI5 building was possible, and it's just above the tree line, so you could have it could have been from there, but the angle was would have been too shallow mm. from the top of that building because it wasn't high enough. The nature of the angle of the video shows that it was pretty high up, and that's why initially I thought of a helicopter flying pretty high up. And then the only <coughs> other place when you look around is this Millbank Tower, that's just behind along, it's on the banks of the Thames more or less, and that's what fits, you know. So someone was up there filming that really coincidentally at that precise time at, on that day and is it, and released it is the other interesting thing. Actually it, gave it to And who media. did you say released that video? Where did the you first find person, that video? The first person I saw it was a BBC Home Affairs correspondent. On his Twitter page? Yeah. Okay. And I told did those... You to, I didn't did you contact, contact him. him? I didn't contact him. I told the AP journalist that... Uh, that that's where I got it from, and then afterwards, whenever I had came up with the idea of, of that it was from this tower, Millbank Tower, I uh, I replied to the girl, and these these are just two ordinary journalists. I think I looked them up, and they're pretty uh, run in the middle kind of, um, you know, AP hacks type of thing. Um, yeah. And they, I just one of them was her name was Philippa, and she, um, I just said to her, by the way, I, I was just looking at it again, and I think the most likely place that this video was shot from was from the top of uh, the, the restaurant on top of Millbank Tower. And she said, oh yeah, good one. Good, 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 good find or good idea or something like that. Thanks. And I said, uh, just, you know, in, out of interest, I said, if, if, if you do find out the origin of this video uh, and if it's appropriate, I, I wouldn't mind knowing, even if only in, in general terms where it came from. But I never heard back from her. In Millbank Tower, is it, did you come across any other media that have offices there? Just RT UK? Yeah, I didn't look at the whole list, but Chances uh, are there's that, probably a few others, yeah. I wonder if um could be a media outlet, and if their offices are high enough, they might just, for whatever reasons, have a camera trained on London a lot of the time, just for... Like for stock footage? For stock footage or something. Mm. Um, yeah. But then who among them would be... Possibly. Oh, 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 oh look at that. Right. Push that out there. You know? Possibly, but the the quality of the video that it produced was extremely poor. Right. So I can't imagine that it would be that that you wouldn't use that for any kind of uh, broadcast. Certainly not broadcast quality video. It seems that it was a, a relatively basic uh, camera. Let's say like a camera that I have um, zooming in with on the vi- with, with video. Yeah. The, zo- the video zoom at that level from that distance. Um, it would my camera would produce a similar. Mm. Uh, quality of video having to zoom in that far um, so it doesn't seem like it's it wasn't a top quality piece of equipment or anything like that but again someone it's it's just so strange that there's no no footage anywhere from street level I mean you have the thing at Christmas in Berlin and you had other mm. car attacks and usually there's somebody who at least catches part of it mm. you know well, a car careening mm. down the street you catch the license plate whatever but there's nothing something was nothing. going on in like the, the two days after it, um, I noticed mm-hmm. um, a lot of kind of social media shaming of anyone who was sh- sharing images, certainly of, well, obviously the in, in the case of dead bodies or injured bodies, yeah. but anything really, oh, don't be showing any of, you know, let's not let the terrorists win or something like that. So mm. there's there's quite a dearth of, any kind of footage, of yeah. even just of the aftermath. Yeah, the, well, the other but thing that, I think that hasn't happened in other things, though. I mean, it didn't happen in Berlin, didn't happen in Paris. I mean, people were right. putting stuff up. Yeah, well, there's plenty. There are, is actually, 
there is actually quite a bit of footage of after after the the event, you know. And I suppose mm-hmm. it can have happened quite quickly. I mean, the car was traveling quite quickly you know, along the bridge, and yeah, it was and over then it disappeared. It was over in, in thirty seconds, maybe, you know, because right. it's a two hundred. The bridge is 250 meters long and he only mounted it, you know, it was maybe 100 meters of actual on the sidewalk mm-hmm. thing, you know, so you're talking mm-hmm. about really less than 30 seconds in terms of, yeah. uh, so, but there's video, video footage of afterwards as well. But as Gimby said, I also, Gimby said in the chat room there that I also thought about the idea that it might have been drone footage, this video, you know, um, mm-hmm. which it, it could have been, you know, if you, you can, suppose you can hold a drone pretty, pretty still in that way. They've got the, the gimbals and all that kind of stuff where you can have quite... But again, if it was a if it was a, if it was a decent quality uh, drone, um, it probably would have been clearer footage again, um, unless it was, it was a crappy quality drone. I don't know. That's all just speculation. But um, but again, yeah. So that's that's the first big strange thing about it. Um, there's one other. The it's kind of par for the course for these events where people on the bridge said they saw a second guy in the car with them. Um, right. Yeah, but he didn't. He didn't sound like a. Well, there were initial reports. Again, if you look at these, it's very interesting in these kind of terror attacks. The ones that tend to stand out are the ones where you see reports of. I mean, because as most people know, most of these uh, so-called terror attacks are um, ascribed to lone wolves, uh, i.e., one person operating on his or her own, her own. Who in recent years then is uh, claimed by ISIS. This was our. Uh, Soldier of the Caliphate was was doing this on our instruction. Or I mean, it's just it's nonsense. But mm-hmm. but, but uh, it's lone, lone wolves basically, guys operating on their own. Uh, and in several of those, I mean, this is going back maybe at this point going back ten years or more. Uh, you have many of these attacks, uh, including in the U.S. in terms of mass casualty shootings, um, were that are, are have been ascribed or were ascribed at the time to lone wolves that. On, on quite a number of occasions, initial eyewitness reports said that there were at least there was one or more, one more or mm-hmm. two more or three more, more than one person basically involved, and those reports are then very quickly kind of disappeared on the memory hole and they're never repeated again because the official story from police is only one guy, um, and this was the case in London because immediately in you know kind of live blogging almost their uh, reports from. Uh, kind of smaller newspapers around London, a few of them, had carried reports about uh, eyewitness reports citing one black guy with a goatee beard and a white guy, a bald white guy, uh, in the car. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was apparently several people had had testified that that's what they saw. But then it became only one guy and and that was the end of it. So um, that kind of makes sense. I mean, I, they tend to just dismiss those reports because if they don't find the guy, then he doesn't exist. But, um, I mean, it, it throws up another possibility, of course, which is that the guy, this, um, what's his name? Um, Khalid Masood. Masood. Masood had an accomplice. And Masood was the fall guy. And the accomplice was uh, had always always planned or always intended to get away. Um, Masood was the stupid one, basically, and this and other this guy, guy was might a, have been his hand, yeah, his handler. 
His handler to some extent, or yeah, he certainly he yeah. was. This would have been another guy who was happy to let Masood take the fall, and you know, didn't give a damn about him. He was expendable, and and escape, you know, to make sure that Masood basically got caught and got done for it, and uh, got killed basically, and, uh, and and this other guy gets away. You know, I mean, I don't understand why police don't follow those up. I suppose uh, they don't like to announce or you know let people know that uh, there might be someone else directly involved in this that they couldn't get a couldn't get a handle on or, or, or got away, you know, and is at large mm-hmm. type thing that you'd probably spread a bit of fear and insecurity and you get a lot of criticism for that. So they kind of tend to suppress those reports maybe for that reason. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, but of course in this situation, a bald white guy, uh, doesn't really fit the description of a, of a jihadi, you know, fighting for the caliphate, you know, unless it was a marriage between the, the far right and, jihad- and you know, <laughs> the, the English Defence League and uh, and ISIS maybe you know they've teamed up because they have yeah. so many common uh, features and interests. Um, but yeah, obviously not. But it's just interesting because we saw the same thing in, in Paris, for example, in the in the Badlerclan uh, music hall, uh, concert hall attacks were many people like yeah. fifty eight or something or more than that. A lot of people were killed, and there were many many reports of 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 white guys uh, involved yeah. in that shooting, black driving suits, Mercedes. Black card, yeah. 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 So, uh, and we could go, I mean, we could, if we'd have to go and look at them all, but there have been loads and loads. I mean, yeah. probably most people have forgotten just about how many of these kind of attacks, either uh, alleged, you know, Muslim terror, terrorists or mass shootings, either Muslim terrorist or just kind of crazy person. Uh, you know, crazy young guy on drugs or something in the U.S. in particular. <clears throat> but between the U.S. and Europe over the past, let's say, 12 years, you've probably forgotten just how many there are. There are dozens of these kind of uh, events where one lone wolf guy of some description has gone and killed a load of people in some way or other. And we'd have to go and look at each one in particular and, and draw up a list, but I would say in a majority of them, at least in 50% of them, there were reports of two people that then mm-hmm. disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not just, in many cases, it's not just that people, eyewitnesses, so bystanders, people totally uninvolved, think they saw them and might have been confused. Uh, one that uh, pops in my mind now is the Aurora Theater shooting mm-hmm. in Colorado, right. where police could all be heard on the radio, on the radio to each other, chasing down the second shooter right. and the third guy over there who's bleeding. We got him, we got him, where'd he go? You know, it's, it's, so it's, and then making statements to the press in the aftermath. Yep. So they all unwittingly became accomplices to a conspiracy of silence in the, that they don't talk about what they saw after the fact. It's gone down as the work of one guy and yeah. he was convicted and sentenced to death, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. James Holmes. Yeah, he hasn't been mm-hmm. executed yet, but the... Uh, yeah, it's um, you get this palpable sense that an official story has just been sold, you know, has just been created, and that that's it, it's done. And then the media runs with it, you know. Very soon after these attacks, there's a period immediately afterwards of chaos and confusion, and it's almost you can you can almost see the the people in in the media kind of fervor, uh, um, feverishly going around putting a story together and trying to you know collect something and with law enforcement eventually. They just, you know, produce something. Something pops out the end of the, 
of the propaganda machine and it's cooked, you know, here, done. And then after that, mm -hmm. that's the end of it. There's no more r reports, you know, of anything other than that official story, you know. The official story is very quickly put together. Uh, but mm -hmm. my, problem, my problem with it is, is that I know people say eyewitness testimony is very unreliable, you know, traditionally or well known to be unreliable. People can see two different things and obviously they both can't be correct. And that happens in a lot of, you know, in situations where it's, it's a chaotic and violent situation and people are a bit shocked and they'll remember different things and remember things differently. But, um, but when you get multiple people reporting the same right. description, I mean, you've right. got to start giving it a little more credence. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's not like it's just one person. They only have one person who said, "I saw this." I mean, when yeah. you've got two, three, four. Well, you know, black guy with a goatee, wild white guy. Yeah. You know, and they all say the same thing. Yeah, my problem with that is that it's too specific. You know. Um, really. You no, know what I mean. My problem with uh, with dismissing that evidence ah, is, is that yeah. it's, too, it's too specific because eyewitness mm -hmm. testimony that is deemed to be unreliable is like. You know, um, the color of a person's coat or whether he was holding a gun or not or, you know, how many shots were fired or the color of a car, um, those kind of things. But when mm -hmm. people, multiple people, assuming this is these are genuine eyewitness reports, say that there was a black guy and a white guy in the car and multiple people say that, I don't know any situation where, uh, think of it yourself, where a car that you know you, you have a car passes you and you have enough time to see the car see inside the car and i can't imagine a situation if i don't know if you can where you would mistakenly see two people of different skin color in a car when there was only one person in the car right i can't imagine exactly. i mean imagine a car driving past you with one black guy in the driver's seat it drives past you and it drives past slow enough for you to see, get at least a decent enough look at the inside of the car and see that there's one person driving uh, in the driver's seat. Um, how would you ever um, get that wrong? Uh, by the same token, if there was another person in the passenger seat, how would you ever say that there, there was only one, for example, to turn around? It's just, it doesn't make sense. No. Mm -hmm. However, you can imagine their plausible response to that, right? The car was traveling so fast, it was all a blur. But if it was all... You right, hallucinated all, a, a bald white guy. <laughs> yeah, but why would you be so specific? Surely people wouldn't... Yeah. Uh, my problem is the specific nature of what people say. If, if people were... If it flew past, people would say, I think there might have been two guys, you know, but for people to say specifically white and black, and even people even said, I don't know when they saw this, but they were able... To, these, these eyewitnesses supposedly were able to say, I don't know if it was driving past them or it was after he crashed... It sounds more like it was after he crashed into the railings outside Parliament uh, that people saw him. That's where people, these eyewitnesses, uh, saw the occupants because they were able to identify. I mean, it was, wasn't just black and white. It was black with a goatee beard. Now, you're not going to notice that if the car's driving past you at any mm. speed. You're not going to be able to say that. out of the way. Right. Uh, so it sounds like it was after these, t apparently two people got out of this car at Parliament. One of them, uh, Masood, went on with his knife to go and stab a policeman and if this bald white guy was was involved, then he walked the other way yeah. and blended into the crowds. Yeah, a lot easier for him too. Yeah. So, it is. One thing that's interesting to me is that uh, the media reported that this, uh, what was his name, Khalid Masood, was a, he was known to MI5. 
and but he was peripheral. They weren't really paying any attention to him. But he was a violent criminal who had been to prison twice for stabbing people in the face. After prison the second time, he went to Saudi Arabia because I guess the media reported he was radicalized in a British prison. Well, they're just they're not saying he was radicalized in prison, just that he uh, converted in prison. So he converted he in prison, then he Muslim. went to Saudi Arabia, then he came back and he changed his name. He had a violent criminal record, and he spent years in Saudi Arabia, and he comes back. And I think if it's true that he was peripheral, that this didn't you know, set off any flags to anyone, it makes me wonder, who are they looking at, and how big is their caseload, really? I yeah. mean, are they, yeah. I think we can't. Overloaded. Are they that overloaded, or are they that, you know? I think we can't take that involved. This, we can't take anything they say at face value because I've heard two contradictory statements, and they've now been blended into a kind of a, uh, an, a plausible story. Now, initially they were saying we didn't know him. Then they said, well, we did know him, and then they've blended it into one by saying, like one of you have already described, we did know him, but he wasn't high up on the list. So mm-hmm. that leaves you that that gives them a kind of a, a leverage or not a leverage that's not the term um, mm-hmm. the hedging bets you know well we did mm-hmm. we didn't both the same time you see mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we did and we didn't now give us more money right yes we need more money to have a, be- a better list and you know to keep a better eye on these people exactly the thing is in in looking at these situations you need to have context and you need to have a I mean we're talking here about with the introduction of the of of the idea or the claim that this guy was known to MI5, uh, he was put in prison prison by a British um, the British state by British uh, police, let's say. So he was on their radar in that respect. And if the MI5 say they knew him, but he was peripheral or whatever, they can say whatever they want. But once you introduce the idea that MI5 <clears throat> was in some way uh, aware of this person, you can, you have to see it, you have to look at it in context of uh, of MI5 and what MI5 does and what it has done in the past. That's why, um, I mean, it's extremely important to do that because, um, you know, you need to know the nature or the character of a person, uh, of of a person who's, who's involved in any can, anything that you're investigating, you know that's what investigators do. They look at, into the background of people who are involved in a crime, or in, and this is a crime, obviously. Um, so, um, of course, MI5 is, is supposedly being the investigating party, but I I tend to look at them as as possible accomplices because, uh, and this is probably available, really, but apparently people just tend to prefer to ignored, overlooked, but there's a large body of official evidence, uh, specifically from Northern Ireland, that shows uh, that MI5 and MI6, basically British intelligence agencies, have a have a policy uh, uh, of running kind of informants and moles uh, in, in different organisations, and the way they, very often the way they go about it is, and this fits the profile of this guy Masood, is that I mean, if they're fighting against someone, for example, in, in Northern Ireland, or they're fighting against the IRA or Republicans, um, in the case of of this attack in London, they're fighting against radical jihadists. And what they do is that, is that now and again, and more often, quite regularly, they'll come across um, 
they'll come across one of these guys, they'll, they'll catch one, right? So in the case of the IRA, for example, they would uh, catch some guy who they had been spying on or following um, and catch him in the act of doing something, something illegal. And they'll make him an offer. They'll say, you can go to prison for 25 years or you can work for us. And the majority of people will, or, I mean, and of course they have other threats as well, which is that, you know, you can go to prison and meet with an unfortunate accident in prison. I, they'll basically threaten them with death or you can work for us. Uh, so, you know, there's not many people who would put in that kind of a bind who would refuse, uh, especially, you know, the kind of people who are a bit clueless anyway, you know. Um, and, what they do then is that they put them back into the the organization, but they're working for MI5, and they're under effectively under the control of MI5. And uh, it's not just a matter of the, now you're back in the organization, just give, give us information. It's you know you you're basically our mole on the inside. You have to you know make sure you continue to act as if you're a legitimate member of the organization, uh, but you pass us information. It's also that you will do things. Uh, for us, things that we tell you to do uh, that we deem are in our interest. <clears throat> in the case of, and this again, this is well documented, in the case of uh, Northern Ireland and the IRA, uh, they had people who, in this position, who carried out um, attacks against civilians at the behest of MI5. Mm. Because it served MI5's interest, for example, to demonize the group to make them look like they were killing civilians, which they were technically, but it was under duress, if you know what I mean. It was just one person who was compromised. Um, so when you look at and there's many, many instances of this, and so when you've understood that that's the reality, about how the uh, MI5 operates in this kind of a low-intensity kind of conflict situation, you can't um, dismiss the idea uh, in the context of this kind of a terror attack, that this may re- may well be what has happened, or uh, this may well be uh, the, the background to to how and why this happened. That this guy um, Masood was contacted by MI5 at some point in the past and effectively became their patsy, their tool, their pawn, and they could send him wherever they wanted. Uh, they possibly sent him, facilitated his trip to Saudi Arabia to kind of sheep dip him. Uh, if, uh, if anybody who's aware of the JFK assassination and Lee Harvey Oswald, that term sheep dipping would make sense. You kind of put a person in in, in specific places to create a, a track record that then can be used later to show that, see, this guy was this guy did what we claim he did, even though he was doing it at our behest. So we set up the whole the whole scenario that implicates him uh, in, in being the culprit for, in the case of JFK, killing. Killing JFK, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald killing JFK, um, but he was a patsy all the way along. He was just a fall guy, uh, and the commission of the actual terrorist attack is by someone else. But you have your patsy under so much control that you can put him wherever you want, and he you place him at the scene of the crime. He get takes a fall. I mean, it's a bit more nuanced, and or can get can it, can get a bit more complicated uh, or complex when. It's not just that you carry out the attack and then put your patsy at the place and let him take the rap for it, but rather um, 
you have a you actually involve him in the attack the attack to make it more um, more convincing you know uh, so that he, there's no doubt that he was actually in the car he did actually stab the policeman but that's uh, that doesn't um the, the, the idea that he was being handled is, is still uh, kind of compatible with that in the sense that, and this is where the, the idea of a bald white guy being involved as a handler in some description of some description uh, ties just, into just it. From the, yeah. Well, from the, from the description of his background and they interviewed, I think in some of the updates in the SOD article, they, they interviewed people who knew this guy. I mean, he was a lunatic. Mm-hmm. He was a violent psycho lunatic. So they didn't, maybe didn't have to lean on him directly like we're going to send you to prison or going to mm-hmm. hurt your family whatever they just had to gin him up and turn him loose you know yeah make it easy for him to do it yeah 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 just just set it up but then then his own nature just kind of kicked in and away he went yeah my only, even, my only problem with those situations is, and the reason why i think the, the, a lot of these situations are kind of handled to some degree is that you'd have to as a as an intel agency like mi5 with this plan in operation, you'd have to be very, very sure of this patsy. Mm-hmm. And, and by definition of being a patsy, he's not reliable because yeah. he, he's not competent, let's say, or he's not the full shilling, as you say, because you have been able to manipulate him up the wazoo basically for, for so long. You know, he's eminently right. manipulatable, therefore not reliable and cannot be relied on. You basically messed with his head. And then you're going to give him some instructions that he has to follow to the letter and not make any mistakes. And you're going to trust that. And if he makes a mistake, it could be possible that you would be exposed. Right. That's why I think very often they are handled, uh, depending on the situation and depending on the person, they're handled to some extent, to one extent or another. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. One other general comment. Um, this kind of thing happens a lot. Um, especially of late, where people snap and mow their car into people on a busy street in a city. Um, I think a couple of years ago, someone was irate in Vienna, Austria, drove his car through a crowd, killed several people, I think. And that was just a guy who lost it, snapped. Yeah. And I think he was charged with manslaughter and probably psychologically assessed and all that. Um, and here you've got a situation where immediately it's breaking news and it's described by the British government as a major terrorist attack. Uh, obviously, it's horrific for the people involved directly and indirectly, but um, I'm sorry, it, it wasn't a major terror attack. It was certainly amplified by and once, by the time it's talked about and in enough by the media, it, it becomes psychologically, it doesn't matter, it may as yeah. well have been a major terror attack, like a massive bomb explosion that killed 200 people. May as well have been, because psychologically that's what you now believe it to be. But actually it wasn't. Well, well it's interesting, for comparison, just last night there was a, <clears throat> I can't remember where exactly it was, somewhere else in England, uh, last night a car um, outside a pub, oh, it was in London actually, I think in Islington, <clears throat> in London, um, a car with a couple of people inside ran into a group of people outside a pub, knocked them down and injured them, and then the occupants fled, and the knife was found at the scene. Now, those people weren't killed, but they were injured. I don't know how badly. And there was a knife involved, so you know, there was probably some intent to stab someone or whatever. 
it's so it's very close to this <coughs> uh, event in, in Manchester, but because it doesn't have the the, the veneer of Islamic terror attack in London, it's oh sorry in, in London because it doesn't have the Islamic terror attack, it uh, it hardly it hardly made any news, you know. But it's very similar, you know, and it just that's the propaganda aspect to it, you know, that you can't and the hype around it. Obviously, someone is trying to push this in a big way and it's the media are being compliant and yeah. pushing it in a big way and although you know doing it at a parliament obviously has another connotation as well or has other implications you know in the sense of was this a message being sent to to the uh, to the rich the rich and, and powerful or the politician political types I mean this was as close as you can get an attack on the political establishment that's why headlines were some of the headlines were you know attack at, on the the heart of power. At the heart of power, you know, um, that makes it a big deal and stuff, you know. But so, was it a heart attack? <laughs> yeah, pretty well, much. Right before the Brexit negotiations are set to begin, it's mean, right. possible. It's supposed to send a, a message. Somebody's sending a message to them. Okay, whatever message. Brexit negotiations. There was also what was being discussed in Parliament at right at that time were yeah. Was apparently a debate on possibility of another Scottish referendum. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, all all that did though was postpone that till Tuesday next week. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't I don't think can't think of any direct obvious motivations from that point. Of no, view. just keeping the keeping the thing taken over, right? Keeping the insecurity yeah. going, the fear going. The I mean, Londoners, yeah. as far as the ordinary people are concerned, I mean, especially older Londoners remember some serious quote-unquote terror attacks, yeah. car bombs, mm-hmm. mass, ca- mass casualty events, mm-hmm. not just in London, but all over the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a, a guy driving down the street I think it has, doesn't really compare with IRA well, bombings. Alleged IRA bombings. Alleged IRA bombings. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, yeah, the... Um the the interesting thing I think it has a there's an insidious uh, aspect to the this relatively new car terror attack because it's one thing for a bomb to go off somewhere to plant a bomb uh, because if you think about that happening in a big city most people would think yeah well that's terrible and there'll be outrage etc but in terms of your personal feelings about it uh, even intuitively or subconsciously you would think well the chances of me ever being caught in one of those are still very slim you know uh, in a city like yeah. London of 11 million people what are the odds I would be right at a specific place where a bomb went off um, but the car if they increase the, this series of car attacks kind of sows a fairly it's kind of like real per, a pernicious kind of fear in a certain sense where people all across London now might be, well, A, they'll be more or even more suspicious of uh, jihadi-looking people, <laughs> whatever mm-hmm. that whatever that is, and also of cars. And yeah. how often do you pass a car uh, if you're walking around the city? You know, there, there are cars everywhere, obviously. So, I mean, it just sows a sense of, 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 of a, a kind of more personal sense of fear in the people, you know, I think. So it's pretty, pretty, pretty nasty in that sense, you know. Um, the, other, the other thing I noticed last night was um, 
well, this morning, but it, it happened last night was in Liverpool. I'm not saying it's related or whatever, but there was a massive explosion and there's drone, drone footage of it. Uh, they're calling it a gas explosion and it was in a dance hall in Liverpool. Um, mm. And it it was a fairly big building, a dance hall, and a row of houses uh, alongside it. And the whole thing was just obliterated. I mean, not just... it was. It, You'd have to assume that the dance hall was the centre of it because it was completely flattened, but also a row of houses are completely gone. Mm. And I think they're probably brick houses. So, uh, and they're calling it a gas explosion. And of course, I've seen many, uh, we've covered a lot of uh, similar events over the past number of years of uh, alleged gas explosions. They seem to be on the increase uh, in the West in particular. Um, where houses just go kaboom and, and take out a bunch of stuff around them and it's put down to gas leaks or gas explosions. And that may be the case, but uh, uh, maybe not, you know. Maybe it's something mm-hmm. else. Um, anyway, that was just as a addendum. Well, speaking of explosion, if we unless we have anything else to cover on London, um, mm-hmm. second part of our title, Crimea Flashpoint. Um, a few you wrote an article uh, just a couple of days ago about all the things going on in Ukraine. One of which was another massive explosion at a, um, a what was it a munitions depot or weapons depot in Kharkov? Um, what was yeah. going on there? It was like it was a huge explosion, yeah. right? If you haven't seen footage of this. You have to look at it. Look it up now. It's oh incredible. It, it took a minute. It's, I don't know. if uh, There are probably still fires going on, but the explosions took place all night and all the next day. Um, <laughs> with, with missiles going off, they stored a lot of stuff there. Um, uh, some, some, some are claiming like up to 70 and possibly 90% of certain types of munitions of the entire Ukrainian army were stored in this one place. And it's just gone. Kaboom. Yeah, and it was a continuous series of, of explosions, you know, the, over over several minutes. Some, I mean, it continued on well afterwards, but there were se- several massive explosions, one after the other, uh, you know, maybe 30 seconds apart, just as these things ignited. And you could see the... It obviously stored... Uh, I mean, there's reports that they they were storing surface or missiles and stuff, and there were definitely missiles or rockets in there because you could see them actually shooting off into the sky. I'm not just talking about shrapnel here. I'm talking about rockets, obviously. Wow. Rocket propulsion because they were doing the spiral thing, you know, uh, that you see. Uh, <laughs> they were, like, spiraling off. Like, I mean, they were solid. Uh, it was obviously uh, something under propulsion, you know, its own propulsion type thing that was designed to have its own propulsion and designed to fly. It wasn't just a piece, of, a chunk of metal or a chunk of, of a building flying and uh, in, in, in just in a, in a kind of ballistic trajectory, this was a yeah a spiral, and some of them f- went way up and mm-hmm. then were crashed into the ground and exploded. I mean, mm-hmm. twenty thousand people had to be evacuated. Basically, the whole of this town, mm-hmm. Balakiev, mm-hmm. in the Kharkov region. Um, I have here an article. It's translated from Russian, um, apparently by some weapons techie, a Russian guy, he's claiming that the trajectory, some of the capabilities of some of these missiles going off would have included not just grad rockets as officially acknowledged by the Ukrainians, but also uh, 
these famous SAMs, surface-to-air missiles, but of the kind that uh, Ukraine definitely does have, and of the kind, he says, that it's claimed were fired by this Buk system against MH17 uh, over this region a couple uh, three years ago now. Um, so, yeah, they had uh, tons of ammunition and high-grade explosives, missiles, everything you can think of in this one place. And you might be thinking, well, why pack it all in one building? But it's not, it wasn't just one building. I've see, also seen drone footage. Try and, try and look for that too and have a look at it. There's drone footage of just a wasteland. It's, it's just a vast area. And part of the reason is because there are some surface buildings, but they're all connected to each other underground. Oh, no. So it's actually a huge facility overall. And they seem to fires and explosions spread deep underground and then connected to all these other places. So um, it's it's a big deal. And uh, who done it? I suppose oh, was it just an accident? Putin did it. Absolutely. Well, it's certainly going to put a crimp in their whole, uh, you know, fighting the rebels in eastern Ukraine. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just a bit. If. Uh, if I was, if I was a, a member of, well, if, if I was anybody in in Novorussia in the Donetsk or Luhansk People's Republic republics, I would, uh, I would have been having a celebratory glass <laughs> of something when that happened because, I mean, those that, that was basically sixty miles from from the conflict zone, and uh, obviously a lot of those munitions would have been used against the people in those mm-hmm. in those areas and uh, now they're kind of more or less put beyond use and I think it is probably a pretty serious blow to Kiev's anti-terrorist operation as they, as they call it which yeah. can only be a good thing um, so I can understand why some people might say well you know obviously the Putin oh, thing oh darn yeah well I can, <laughs> I can, underst- I can understand why Russia would or the Ukrainians Poroshenko and co would be like Putin did it because um, Putin does everything, as far as they're concerned. Any, anything bad that happens is, is done by Putin, which is kind of silly, so you just dismiss that out of hand almost immediately. But yeah. I can understand why some people would think that it was someone from the Novorussia who did it. Some of the, you know. But then the question of how they would get in there is a bit, uh, is, is a bit yeah. problematic, you know, because... But then again, um, I can imagine that given the decrepit state of pretty much all... Um, all of uh, Ukrainian politics and uh, increasingly its infrastructure and uh, policy making and governance basically uh, mm-hmm. I can imagine that you know the, the security um, uh, security procedures etc around that base were probably not the best you know the Ukrainians don't have the best uh, record of being a, a well trained well polished uh, kind of a military uh, machine you know quite the opposite so i can imagine that a lot of things were lax at that base and that you know it's possible that someone could have got in but then there's a third option which is that uh, someone on the inside uh was it was just fed up with it fed up with the whole with basically the massive corruption going on in ukraine the destruction of the ukrainian con- economy under these mm-hmm. proxy washington's proxy uh, political dupes in 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 kiev who were just running the country into the ground and are happy to keep throwing Ukrainian taxpayers' money at purchasing uh, weapons to wage their little war 
down in, in East Ukraine at the expense of the Ukrainian people. And then you have ordinary soldiers, who are, many of whom have been killed in that conflict for, you know, just for, for profit, effectively, as far as a lot of them are concerned, I reckon, uh, who, who would be working uh, in that, or might have been working in that, in that depot or have access to that depot. And uh, it would have been pretty easy, and that that would put, that would be the easiest uh, uh, way for something like that to happen. Of course, you'd have to. It requires someone to be in that position where they would want to do it. And like I'm saying, it's possible. But the easiest way for someone to get into uh, or to, to blow up a weapons depot is 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 for someone to uh, have legitimate access to it. Someone on the inside. That's kind of Occam's razor in a certain sense. But then you have to decide. Well, how likely is it? Well, that's why we talk about uh, probably the high level of discontent among the ordinary people in Ukraine and the people, many people in the Ukrainian military, who are just being uh, treated like uh, expendable kind of cannon fodder, you know, um, in in East Ukraine, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. Uh, go ahead, Carol. I was going to say not only that they they are so broke. Yeah, Ukraine as a country is so broke. They're not, you know, if it, their chances of being able to replace that, as much as all the arms dealers would love to sell them, you know, shiny new stuff, they don't have the money for it. So they, they're really in a double bind here. They just get rid of more of their, you know, whatever existing social services and pensions there are, and just go further into debt and, and sell off a few more resources. Why not? But I, well, I do, I do like just, that scenario of yeah. of it being. I mean, it, it seems it's such a big deal and it comes at, you know, I mean, these last couple of years, three three years overall, I've been critical for Ukraine, um, its interests. So it, it does come at a, it, it's a, it's a bigger loss for them happening now in this context. So it mm-hmm. does suggest intent somewhere to do it. Um, insiders in Ukraine are fed up. I do like that scenario. For what it's worth, um, Someone's produced a map of accidents, fires, explosions at Ukrainian depots. Uh, uh, going back 15 years, there have been a dozen of varying size, though, and none as big as this. This is definitely the, the biggest and most expensive accident in the country in yeah. at least 15 years. Just to give you an idea on the on the Ukrainian, Ukrainian economy and situation and the fecklessness and the corruption involved in that, I mean... We talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, about the decision to blockade uh, by Poroshenko, effectively, to, to blockade um, uh, or to impose an economic blockade on on the territory of the of the Eastern Ukrainian republics, uh, including coal and, and a few other things that they basically wouldn't be buying anymore. And the result of that is that it's going to drag the economic growth in Ukraine down from an estimate of 2.8% down to 1.9%, uh, but it also uh, that decision by Poroshenko just out of, you know, on, on principle, kind of like, I won't deal with terrorists, calling the people of Eastern Ukraine terrorists and, and therefore not purchasing vitally important uh, materials from there for the Ukrainian economy, uh, it prompted the IMF to delay uh, another tranche of, uh, of funding uh, to Ukraine, because uh, the MF doesn't give a crap. Like they're not, they're not on side with, uh, with Poroshenko and his his principles. Basically, uh, they're like, listen, if you're gonna uh, 
hurt the Ukrainian economy for your principles, then we're not gonna we're not gonna continue to dump a bunch of money on you. You know, so the guy's just like really is just driving the economy into the ground on on. I suppose it's out of like uh, his hatred for Russia, basically, or his or his own greed or whatever. And yeah, you can imagine that a lot of people uh, are already seriously pissed off in Ukraine about that, uh, and already have been for quite a while. And and this kind of these kind of things that that the government there is doing uh, are just making matters worse. So I wouldn't be surprised if it give rise gives rise to uh, some kind of sabotage basically by members of the military or members of the Ukrainian population I mean they're just they're asking for trouble there big time and that's what you get when you align yourself with uh, the USA basically and allow them to stage a coup in your country and impose a bunch of idiots and um, and then just walk away and say thanks see ya mm-hmm. we, we've uh, you know we've uh, we tried to take Crimea through this coup from uh, and, and the Black Sea Fleet Sevastopol from Russia, but Russia was too smart for us, didn't work, so we don't really have any interest in you anymore, so see you later. Well, speaking of that, they, they, they are flagging a continued interest in it, in a sense, mm. because also this week there were... Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose what I'm saying is they don't have, we don't have any more interest in, in you know, we have no more interest in helping your economy. Right. Uh, we have no more interest... We have no more genuine interest or feigned genuine interest or if you thought we ever had any actual interest in the welfare of Ukrainian people and Ukraine as a country, well then I'm sorry to tell you we don't give a damn. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're interested in is screwing over Russia at every turn. You're just a pawn, you're just a tool. I mean, we will just cast you aside if you're no no use to us anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, their big use is to just leave leave a mess on Russia's doorstep and, you know, like, okay... You know, the, and they'll probably hoping that if there's any kind of rebuilding or restitution or some kind of, of help for the Ukrainian people, it's it's not going to come out of their pocket. They want right. Russia to do it. If Russia's and exactly. other than that, if Russia doesn't want to, then it's just a big mess and it's a continuing yeah. continuing problem for them to be worrying about. We we have a we have a call here. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how long it's been waiting, but I'll go ahead and take it. Hello. Who do we have on the line? Hey, this is Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Long time no yeah. speak. Yeah, yeah. I haven't uh, talked to y'all for a while because I can't get your uh, your radio program through my iPhone. So. Oh, okay. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm on a computer right now, but um, yeah, I just think that this is a very interesting situation. What's going on on several different fronts? Um, for one thing, Crimea. I was a little bit surprised when Nikki Haley, the new the UN uh, representative for the United States, came out making very strong statements about uh, Russia giving back Crimea to Ukraine. And um, I was wondering why I was wondering kind of why that was happening, because um, Trump has to know that that's just a non-starter that will never happen. So um, why? Why do y'all think that she came out with that those statements? I think crime? maybe I think Trump is trying to get some breathing space in in Washington uh, mm-hmm. because the stick they're beating him with is that he's a Russian agent. Right. So right. demonstrably prove that he's not, and he might get some breathing space, and in a couple of years meet Putin and then recognize Crimea or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it's, pre- it's pretty ineffective, if you know what I mean, for him to say that. I mean, that's been said. I mean, or for her to say that, it's it's been said um, so many times since uh, since uh, Crimea was re- repatriated effectively in, in, into Russia, uh, and there's been so many, so much outrage published in the in the media and, and heard from Western politicians that it's like, yeah, Russia is just like, <laughs> yeah, thanks for your opinion. Um, well, it makes no difference whatsoever, you know, and, um, uh, you don't suppose she's trying to do a little polishing of her own neocon cred either. Too. Yeah, I, I kind of imagine that happening, but, um, I think that, you know, I, I would like to think that Trump is a lot smarter than what we're seeing on the surface. For one thing, um, I think he's definitely seeing the, uh, how deep the uh, arms manufacturers are, the uh, yeah. the um, the war machine, the military industrial complex, and um, I'm th- um, I don't think that Trump is so dumb that that he thinks that this is something a bargaining chip to actually keep pushing on the Crimea. Um, no. I don't. I think, but I, I believe what you're saying is that um, really I'm thinking that with the Democrats coming out with all the Russia phobia we're really seeing how deep the military industrial complex and the CIA, how the, um, the ties to money and the institutions, you know, that have thousands of jobs. We're seeing how deep this stuff goes here in the United mm-hmm. States um, with Trump coming to the presidency. Um, I still support Trump. Um, I think he's trying to do his, the best that he can given the situation that exists. I'm not naive. Um, I, I would like to, and I doubt this will happen, like, for example, with the failure of um, the Republicans to repeal Obamacare, hmm. I would, it would be brilliant if Trump came out with something like from the left, like a Medicare for all, get rid of the insurance company parasites. I don't see that happening, but in my little fantasy in my mind, that would be a brilliant move on his part because the American people are just being raped and ruined by these huge parasitical uh, players in the medical industry. It's just, mm-hmm. it's amazing. I meet seniors that are paying um, $1,400 a month for health insurance. I mean, it's just right. draining. It's draining people. We get the, uh, we pay the, we pay the most and we get the worst healthcare outcomes in the entire industrial world. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's fascinating. I deal with um, some doctors and so forth, and you can't even have a, a discussion. I don't even try to broach the subject because they're just so, if they're making good money, they're just so full of these nostrums and these uh, half truths, you know, and this kind of wishful thinking that colors their ideology. They don't, they don't study other systems in the world they don't think critically about it because they're making a lot of money and they're just, um, you know, they're making 300, 400, 500,000 a year. And um, they just have no compunction to think critically about health care. But it, it's it's definitely a, a drain. Now, the other issue I wanted to bring up is what's going on in Syria with um, with Raqqa and the United States, um, you know, taking over this dam with um, some of these um, anti-Syrian uh, fighters. Mm-hmm. You guys, Kurt, did you guys, did you guys broach that already? No, no. Okay. 
I'm I'm wondering I'm wondering how much um, these policies are are um, trying to make a move to partition Syria, or if there's some larger cooperation with Russia that behind the scenes that's going on. Because from what I also understand is that um, Trump is has made moves to not fund um, and support Al Qaeda um, like Obama's administration did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the situation there is that the the U.S. is under Obama. His uh, their plan A was, as you know, um, to overrun. Uh, Syria with uh, with jihadis, with a jihadi mercenary army, and depose Assad, and basically make Syria into a another kind of a client state of, of the U.S. in the Middle East forevermore type thing. But that uh, with with Russia coming in, that didn't um, didn't didn't go too well, and they had to move to Plan B. And their Plan B was quite quickly, and saw this maybe uh, about a year ago or so um, or more. They started to um, align with the the Kurds, you know, they started to really put put their put their full, full kind of uh, support behind the Kurds. And Plan B seems to be to create a kind of a, a Kurdistan in the north of Syria, because um, originally the whole whole reason for trying to get rid of Assad with these mercenaries was because Assad basically said no to a Qatari proposed Qatari uh, gas pipeline through uh, Saudi Arabia, through Jordan and Syria. And then on into Turkey, and over to uh, over to Europe to supply Europe with uh, its gas needs to try and supplant Russian gas to Europe. Again, it was about largely about uh, apart from making lots of money geopolitically, it was about uh, pushing back Russia and and denying them access to the to European market or reducing their influence over the European over European politicians and European politics and the European market. And when the Saad said no, basically because uh, and he's on record of say, uh, saying no. Because uh, of because Russia was uh, an ally of Syria and he wasn't about to engage in a, a in a plan or give his country over to a plan that uh, that would screw over Russia, so that then precipitated the Assad Moscow kind of situation, and like I said, that didn't didn't work out because of uh, Russia's intervention. So Plan B was to create or is to create a uh, a Kurdistan, and you know Kurdistan has been. Uh, a long promised, uh, a long promised state for the Kurds. Um, potentially, I mean, in theory, original or traditional Kurdistan uh, uh, encompasses north of Iraq, Syria, into a big chunk of Turkey, and even into Iran. But the kind of uh, slimmed down version of that, uh, uh, that's practical or, or, or doable in theory, as far as the Americans are concerned or the West is concerned, is just in the north of uh, Iraq and north of Syria. And that would basically more or less join up from eastern Iraq all the way over to the Mediterranean. And that would, assuming Iraq stays under um, uh, U.S. control, and they seem to be controlling it not just with quite a large number of troops that have never left there, but also uh, by facilitating kind of almost daily bombings and you know to keep the government kind of destabilized and uh, non-functioning. Um, what's the term they used? Uh, uh, failed state a failed state kind of thing a semi-failed yeah. state uh, so the idea would be then just to run the same pipeline <clears throat> um, up through Iraq and across Kurdistan uh, to the Mediterranean and supply Europe that way 
Uh, of course, the problem the problem in this is, and this is where it's gone wrong for them again, is that Turkey, and you notice that Turkey's main involvement in Syria has been to prevent the Kurds from establishing a Kurdistan in northern Syria because uh, Erdogan does not want that because obviously the, the implication is that once they get a kind of partial Kurdistan in northern Iraq and Syria, well, then they're going to lobby for uh, the rest of it, which is, and there's, there's something like... Um, <coughs> I don't know, something like 20 million maybe, 15 or 20 million uh, Kurds in Turkey, in the south of Turkey there, so they would kind of unite, and then Turkey would lose a big chunk of its country to, uh, to Kurdistan. So the last thing Erdogan and the Turks want, or at least the, the, the Turks that are aligned with Erdogan, the last thing they want is to, have, of, to see this Kurdistan in the north. So the Americans are beset in their plan B by serious uh, Turkish resistance to that, and you notice that Turkey has been demonized, and Erdogan has been demonized, repeatedly by in the West, particularly in Europe, uh, but also by the Americans for the past, you know, year or really starting maybe a year or two ago, uh, and calling mm-hmm. him a dictator and Islamic dictator. He wants to re- recreate his caliphate and all this kind of stuff, or, or recreate the Ottoman Empire. He's basically been called a dictator at every turn, you know. And, uh, and that's because he's not playing ball anymore, because it seems, I think, that uh, the Russians and the Turks, or Erdogan and Putin, had a bit of a chat and... Putin kind of spelled that out. Listen, you know what these people are planning, right? Now that now that we Russia are in Syria and they can't do what they originally planned, you know what they're planning, right? They're planning to uh, facilitate the establishment of a Kurdistan. You want that to happen? And Erdogan's like, well, no. So um, that kind of turned Turkey away from NATO in the West, and and the the blowback or the re- response from that had been, uh, you know, repeated demonization of of Erdogan in the Western media to the point where everybody in the West apparently thinks Erdogan is this evil, vile dictator when, when he's not, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, it's well, I was wondering, uh, in, that, in, that, in that vein, um, it's totally against, it'd be totally against international law for the United States to set up, set up military bases there and say that, hey, this is... Uh, this part right. of Syria is now uh, right. part of Kurdistan, right? Yeah, but and they, then, and then, they never really liked international law, you know. And then there's the factor of of Iran. Right. Um, the, it seemed that Turkey and Iran would have common cause because Iran has a sizable Kurdish population that they don't want to lose territory either, right? Right. But, um, but the problem is that the Iran are Shiites and um, Turkey are these Sunni Mm-hmm. Muslim Brotherhood types, and right. um, and I know that's a huge generalization, but there's a fear of um, from Saudi Arabia and this in this dominant Sunni nations, Qatar, United Arab Emirates. Um, there's the fear of um, a, what they call the Shiite crescent. Uh-huh. Um, but the problem with that, um, Syria is quick to reject that notion because. Um, that whole notion is a rationale for for the fueling the terrorism and also the fact that Syria is um i think 60% sunni if uh-huh. I, something like that right? right but they're secular they were they were secular until a lot of these small rural areas were radicalized with um Saudi Arabia money and so mm-hmm. forth mm-hmm. but anyway i just i, I just kind of like the whole thing is just a huge mind uh blower and it's hard to you know, looking at what's going on in um, Ukraine with the U.S., Ukraine being on the verge of being a failed state, I was surprised that they have any economic growth whatsoever mm-hmm. at this juncture. But um, they're failing there. The United States is failing there, but they 
They just need to keep the cash going to NATO and the big arms manufacturers and the in Western Europe. There's all these parties that get money from uh, you know they get kickbacks from NATO being there and mm-hmm. and uh, the e, the EU project and all of that. But they it seems like they really shot themselves in the foot. Europe uh, shot themselves in the foot by supporting U.S. imperialism that displaced all these people. And um, and what kind of like that blew my mind that they would support U.S. imperialism and violence with all these people fleeing into Europe. But it seems like their capitalist class was kind of eager for this huge injection of desperate people that would undercut um, some of their domestic labor. Right. Put downward pressure on labor. So their own greed right. got the better of them. And now it's all blowing back and blowing up in their faces. But yes. I see, you know, I'm from the United States. I'm, I'm, I just want to make this last statement and I'm going to get up. But I'm from the United States and I'm really watching nothing ever. Nothing gets fixed. Nothing gets better. Um, the, the whole <coughs> medical issues just indicative of it. There's not the jobs that have been created in the last eight years, 90 over 90% are temporary or part-time. They're a service industry. They don't play money. There's the, um, H1B visas, um, which, which, uh, put downward pressure on, uh, software, you know, tech jobs here. Um, it's just the whole thing just seems like it's going in a really bad direction. And I've, I've never been as negative about the prospects of being in the United States in this country than in my whole life as I am right now. Yeah. Well, things can only get worse, Stephen. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, look at, you look at everything and you're like, you know, the only thing that you can hope for is there's not a nuclear war. Yeah. You know, like, and, the, and, then, and then it's like you look at how corrupt everything is and like you, you, you want, you know, I'm just talking for myself. I want there to be a massive financial collapse because only after that mm-hmm. can you see anybody do engaging in movements to to change the political scene right. where we can have renewal. Right. And yeah. we need but, renewal. Uh, yeah, and, and what's fascinating, I'm gonna get off after this comment, but what's fascinating is like when you look at all the propaganda from your your average newspapers, the AP, CNN, and you look at their narratives, it just doesn't make sense, but you know who you know who who really who all of this is geared toward is the managerial classes. It's not the working class. All of the you know this propaganda is really get is geared toward the people that vote, that people that identify as Republican or Democrat in their upper their middle to upper middle class or wealthy, and those are the managerial classes, and that and um and they are the ones if you have enough money. You're not going to question things, but then if you're if you're struggling like people like me, you're going to be uh, more critical thinking and and saying, "Hey, you know, this doesn't add up." But mm-hmm. um, it just it's just fascinating to watch this slow motion uh, train, train wreck. wreck here. And um and um, I think that I don't know. Like I said about Trump, I, I I'm just of a mixed mind about the guy. I didn't vote. I didn't vote the last cycle, but I'm mm-hmm. a mixed mind about the guy. I I think he wants to do what's best for the country that he can, but he's, he's, a, he's a classic. Yeah. And he's not being allowed to. And um, I don't think he's, I don't think he's stupid, but he's, he's very smart at making money and dealing with the corrupt economic system that allows him to become a billionaire. But when it comes to these larger issues, he, he really is not that smart when it comes to geopolitics and, 
and how government works, but he, he is trying to do his best. But, um, the system is so freaking corrupt. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just amazing to watch, you know, but anyway, mm-hmm. let yeah. me get off and I appreciate y'all's show. I listen to it. Um, you know, I listen to it every week and I just haven't had a chance to call in, but it's good. You guys keep up the good work and happy anniversary. Thanks. Steve. All right. Thank you, Stephen. All right. Take care. Thanks, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye-bye. Well, I've got a couple things to say in response to some of the things Stephen brought up. Um, yeah. The first thing he brought up was the Nikki Haley thing. And I think maybe a perspective to take on um, what's going on in kind of U.S.-Russian relations, um, you know, in addition to what's already been said, is that if you look at the situation, um, Trump is basically, his administration is starting from just say like point X. And point X is the just the continuation of the previous policies. So U.S. policy is like, I mean, it's it's continuous in the sense that there's an official policy. And unless something happens to change that, that stays U.S. policy. Right. So for the various reasons we've said, Trump hasn't been able to change policy. So it stays on. It's not necessarily that it's uh, simply just inertia or it's it's even just lip service or whatever. It's just that that's just the official party line. Mm-hmm. And so. So it's natural that as soon as the new administration would come in, it's not like everything changes 180 degrees overnight and all of a sudden everything's completely different because, I mean, there's just, there's even just basic institutional reasons like personnel and people that are working on this for why policy And budgets. You know, and budgets, yeah. So, but also there's, there's another angle and that is kind of the, um, the Trump personality in that, um, you know, Trump isn't pro-Russia or pro-anyone else. He, you know, he's adamantly pro-American. And that means that regardless of, you know, he's not out there to be extra super nice to any other country just for the sake of being nice. You know, he wants something from that for the U.S. So if you look at it from that way, um, he's got a bunch of cards in his pocket and those are the current the current policies. And so he's going to want something in return for uh, for changing any of those policies. So until that opportunity comes about, those policies are going to at least, you know, for the most part, stay the same. There's not going to be any major, like, concessions unless there's a deal made. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that from the perspective of Russia, I mean, um, you know, they're they're just as um, savvy deal makers as, as Trump. They know the game. And so I think that's why, that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why, for example, the entire, you know, Russian government has been so adamant that the that sanctions are meaningless. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, no, no. Well, we don't care if if they have sanctions, and one of the reasons for that is because they can then say they basically take sanctions off as a negotiating, um, um, you know, chip on the table. Mm-hmm. Because if someone then offers, oh, well, if you do this for us, we'll get rid of sanctions. They they've got you know, so two yeah, two years of saying, well, you know, that doesn't matter with us, so give us something else. So they've kind of they've kind of um determined some of the rules of the negotiating game through their stance on um on sanctions so and you saw that when trump just you know blurted out something about um you know i think it was right after his inauguration or right before where he just kind of said oh you know maybe we'll have you know we'll try to do some uh what was it nuclear um um Want to redo the nuclear deal? Non-proliferation or something in response for sanctions, and immediately, you know, Peskov says, "Oh no, that's nonsense. We won't do that." And so that's kind of the Russian perspective. And so the whole Crimea thing—it's like that's that's a chip. It's like, okay, well, we'll you know, we'll recognize Crimea for this big 
um, you know, concession on your part. So that's just, I mean, it's just kind of part of the game that that's being played. It doesn't necessarily mean or imply that uh, the U.S. is going to continue being like super belligerent about it. Um, you know, that who knows that that could happen, but it's it's just kind of up in the air, but it stays the same for that period of time. Um, so I just wanted right. to bring bring that up. Yeah. I mean, on the on the Trump thing, I mean, I think people need to see it as you talked about draining the swamp and all these promises and yeah, they're campaign promises and, and that kind of thing. But what Trump did, uh, like you said, Harrison, he, when, he, when he became president, when he entered office, he... He was starting from point X, and point X was basically a large, monolithic, kind of a juggernaut that was the U.S. deep state, if you want to call it that, or the military-industrial-political complex that had been rolling for you know, 100 years in a certain direction and had been gathering speed. So he, when, he, when he became president, he jumped on a train that was traveling in one direction at a very high rate of speed. Now, with a lot of cars behind it. Right, with a lot of weight and inertia behind it. Are, are, you know. So the idea that he was just going to do a U-turn, well, I mean, I think the analogy actually works very well. If you do a U-turn in a train at that, at that speed, you wreck everything. The whole thing goes off the rails. And that's what, that anybody who thinks that it could have been turned around and turned into... Uh, Utopia and the American dream type thing overnight is, or even within a short, a relatively short period of time, is, is delusional. They don't understand uh, just the forces that have been pushing America in the direction it's mm. it's been going, and how long they have been building up and and, and consolidating their power. And to confront that, uh, it, it might take two terms just to just to apply the brakes. Right. Really. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and there's um, there's another thing. Um, Stephen kind of expressed some. Uh, kind of ambivalence, you know, about Trump, and but with the hope that he's kind of smarter than he appears. And I think there might be something to that, just in the sense that um, Trump is, a, you know, has a specific type of personality, and I guess you could call it a, a winning personality, if uh, you know, for lack of a better we're, phrase. We're going to win and, so much, and that is that, like, for you know, for all of his character flaws and the, and the things that people don't like about him, he is pretty effective at not only getting his message across, but getting things done. And if you, you can see that in his business too. I mean, everyone talks about his bankruptcies, um, but without mentioning that, uh, that even that is kind of a, it's a business strategy where you um, diversify mm-hmm. so much and put your money into so many different projects to see which ones fail. And then when you, then you learn something from the ones that fail, you don't do that again. And you repeat the ones that, that do win. It's called, what is it like AB testing? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, but so when you combine all those kinds of things, Trump is in this new environment. Like he, like Stephen said, he's kind of good at the, the, the money kind of thing, but he's in a new environment. What he's, but what he's basically, what you've basically got here is that you've got someone that's been, been put in a new situation who has like a, you know, a specific um, set of skills that has, um, you know, that pretty much enables him to enter a situation and then learn the ropes. It's kind of just, it's just a basic learning process of learning what doesn't work and what does work. What we've had with preview with, well, with politicians in general, you know, career politicians is that they, they just know the ropes and they do the same things over and over again. Here we've got a guy that comes in that actually has some things that he wants to do that kind of go against the grain. 
And so again, like what it's, he's only been in, in office for what, two months or something. And so I guess what I'm just basically trying to say is that it's possible that this guy actually has some skills and some intelligence in the sense of when he's put in this situation and he tries things and they don't work and he, and then he, he tries something and there's all this backlash every time that happens he he learns something about the way the system works and mm-hmm. then he'll he's by his very nature he's going to try to learn how to get around that and how right. to how to win in his way yeah and so just from that perspective it's it's an interesting thing to watch to see how things develop and and to see if he has that that capacity and you know just how it turns out it could be a a, a massive catastrophe <laughs> or it could be just kind of fun to watch or you know both at the same time that's very fun to watch um for starters i think in on one level he's really flummoxing the career politicians who all they know are politics i mean here's supposedly uh, scott adams wrote wrote about it in a tangential way this this huge failure when he did not pass his bill and everybody's going oh Trump, mm-hmm. blah, blah. but you know he instead of you know, running around and trying to, you know, do everything he did, everything that he thought he could to make it pass. But when it didn't, he just walked. He didn't try to make peace. He didn't say, like, okay, screw it, on to the next thing. And I think everybody's kind of standing around slack-jawed going, wow, you know, that's that's not usually what a president would do. But he said, okay, don't want to do it. Well, We're gonna go do something else. And it's also <laughs> what a dictator doesn't do. It's like, so did you hear about that time that, the, you know, the dictator Hitler – didn't get his health bill passed in, in, in Congress. <laughs> like, uh, what? You know, no, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But well, that, and that's, I mean, I, I enjoy reading Scott Adams mm-hmm. blogs for, you know, the, for the past several months, but even just from reading, you know, him and other people for all those months, it, I mean, it, it, it's not a, a really big surprise because if you look at what he's been saying about healthcare, well, it, it actually fits exactly into his, um, you know, his campaign promises basically because he was saying, you know, all these great things about the next, the new healthcare plan that's going to be put through. And then you have Paul Ryan's that comes in and, you know, it doesn't really look very great and people are pointing out all the flaws with it. And so if it would have passed, you know, it would have been a disaster and everyone would have blamed Trump and Trump would have looked bad this way. You know, the bad bill that wouldn't have fulfilled his campaign promise doesn't pass. And, you know, so people are now just saying he's incompetent. Whereas if you look at the response, like he gave a little, you know, a little talk in the Oval Office that was put on the White House YouTube channel. And he essentially just lays it out there in his kind of typical way. But he says, oh, yeah, there were some things in this bill that I didn't really agree with. I'm not going to go into specifics or anything, but I think it was a great bill. But I didn't really agree with it. Like, you know, he says, you know, the opposite thing in the same sentence. But then he says, what I hope is that in the future now, you know, Obamacare will will crash and then we can have a bipartisan, you know, bill that everyone's happy with. Mm hmm. And right there, you know, that even just him saying that, I mean, that's what Scott Adams has been saying all along, that that's kind of how he sees a Trump presidency going uh, in the future is that kind of moving to the center and trying to get basically trying to unify the nation and trying to get both sides, opposite sides to actually agree on something. Mm -hmm. That's what he wants. And so it's kind of a not only does it set up in the future for actually getting things done, it it shows his willingness and it kind of softens the edges around Trump so that, you know, people basically see that he isn't Hitler, you know. Mm-hmm. They're putting tremendous, they're also putting tremendous pressure on anyone affiliated with Trump or who might potentially be an ally. Um, you've probably heard about these Senate hearings on these alleged Russian connections between the Trump 
mm-hmm. campaign team and Russia. Um, <laughs> little article in the, the Guardian of London today, lawmakers' pre- peculiar midnight run endangers Trump-Russia in- inquiry. Um, so somebody's leaking to the press that De- Devin Nunes or Nunes, I'm not sure how Nunes. Nunes, Nunes, who now is the chair of this House Senate uh, Intelligence Committee, uh, who was a former Trump advisor also, made a an unexplained disappearance from an Uber ride with a staffer on Tuesday night. Um, <laughs> the, what it, all it amounts to is that, yeah, he left, he, he was in a taxi ride and he made, uh, no, a stop. Maybe he got a call and said, oh, you want to come and have a look at this? And then he, he makes, he calls a snap press conference the next day to say that, um, Due to certain new information, which you wouldn't disclose, that's come to light, I'm planning to, I don't know, uh, they're very short on details. Anyway, he said it would have some impact on where this inquiry is going. No, the information was actually is actually that uh, Trump was Trump was wiretapped. That's the that's the big information. Is, that's that's what I, it is. Okay, yeah. right, right. That makes sense to me now because I was trying to understand why. Because now the reason why this is even a news story is because he's he's being ratted out by people who are watching him, and oh, he's doing things he's not supposed to do. He's going off script. Yeah, you know. Well, it's just it. The story is that he basically got information, and he won't disclose the source that that uh, the FBI were uh, did. Did pick up information from um, from Trump Tower, from Trump, uh, from the Trump campaign, members of the Trump campaign, and that uh, therefore, um, you know, this uh, it's like it's he's meant to be part of the investigation into whether or not there were dealings between. Uh, the Congressional Committee investigating whether or not there were dealings between Russia and the Trump campaign to subvert the presidential election. That's what he's meant to be part of a committee to... He's part of a committee that's meant to be investigating that. He uh, was on the Trump transition team. He was, but he got, came off that and he's now part of that. I supposedly make it kind of bipartisan or something like that or make it a bit more, you know, so it's yeah. not a bunch of Hillary people. He's on there, you know. Mm-hmm. But he obviously he was a Trump person, uh, you know, not so long ago, but now he's officially on this committee to, as, as part of this investigation. And during this period of time when he's meant to be part of this committee, he jumps out of a taxi with a staffer and the staffer doesn't know where he went. And he comes back later and says that he makes this announcement to the, gives a press conference and the media, you know, Fox News and everybody had it, it was what day? Yeah, it was during the week uh, saying that basically he basically said that there is evidence. We did find evidence. Uh, or there is evidence. I have evidence that um, that Trump was what the Trump campaign was spied was, on, was spied on <laughs> which validates Trump's yeah. to some extent validates Trump's statements. Now the media is all over this saying this load of nonsense, and this guy's just a he's just he's just trying to you know you know give Trump a helping hand or help him up a little bit or help him out a little bit because uh, the reality of based on what this guy said, he had the information he had was that that the FBI was actually wiretapping or listening into the conversations of the people that the Trump uh, staffers were talking to, that they weren't the object. The Trump staffers weren't the object of the conversation. But of course, if you want to listen, if I want to listen to a conversation you're having with Harrison, or if I, sorry, if I want to, if I want to listen to what Harrison is saying, 
and I happen to be having a conversation with you, well, then I'm going to record your call as well, mm-hmm. right? But I'm not interested in you. I'm interested in what Harrison is saying, right? Uh, so that's the situation with uh, what the media says is, is what's really going on here, and that it's, it's, it's nothing. It's, 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 it's inconsequential. It doesn't validate what Trump says. But of course... But of course it does, 100%. Well, it doesn't... In and of itself, they can say that it doesn't validate it, but the whole point is that... Uh, <laughs> The whole well, point. The, the thing that made it made it so so egregious uh, is that they didn't follow their own guidelines, which is when you eavesdrop on an American citizen, you're not supposed to disclose your identity. You're supposed to remove all identifying remarks. And these people were named; they were all listed, right. and that never should have happened. And that's the the brujas is over the fact that these people were not redacted from the records; they uh-huh. had them all. Yeah. So, big no no. Yeah. So. But the, the the context in which all of this is happening is obviously the the allegations that Trump, the Trump campaign or Trump himself and his people were conspiring with uh, the Russians to subvert the American democracy and you know steal it from Hillary Clinton, which is all a load of nonsense. Which <laughs> you're talking about people, the people are the people are making this claim come out with a dodgy dossier, exactly like the Iraq dodgy dossier in two thousand and three. Which has been, which was ridiculous, which was completely made up and discredited afterwards, and has been forever since. Uh, these are the same people who are now coming up with this dossier on Russian connections with the Trump campaign. These people are not credible. These are the, the U.S. intelligence uh, agencies, uh, uh, foreign and domestic, that have a track record of lying to the American people. So why is the media even given any credence to that at all? Why is there an investigation happening into? how Trump and Russia subverted the the elections when it's based on nothing and there's no evidence for it whatsoever. They're following this. This is purely nothing more than a, than a, a, an attempt to discredit and bring down the Trump administration based on falsy, bullshit, made-up allegations. What the media is doing is because the politicians are doing it. So it, it's, well, it's so transparently yeah. obvious that but hand in hand, yeah. Trump is being told by the nobility, the Washington elites, we're going to we're going to basically suffocate you with this yeah. and there's nothing you can do about mm-hmm. it. And that's, that's the crux of the issue. You know, he's, he's probably learning just how far they're willing to go, just how pervasive they are, how many they are and how big he probably, he probably had some idea of how big a battle he would have when he became president, but he's really getting a taste of it now. Yeah. Uh, but he's not, he's not likely to back down is the thing, you know, and um, he doesn't seem like he's backing down. He hasn't shown any evidence that he would back down. So you've got two, two forces there that uh, are, are, you know, um, clashing. And uh, and I'm sure the thing is that people talk about Trump, like Trump, and he seems like he's on his own or whatever. It's 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 the deep state against Trump, but obviously that's not the case. Trump has very wealthy backers, backers had very wealthy backers. There's a there. This is this is. This is effectively a civil war within mm-hmm. American deep state politics, effectively. Or, or a low-intensity civil war. Well, it's, pre- it's pretty serious, though, in terms of what's going on behind the scenes. You know, I mean, this has never happened before. The reason why it's pretty serious is because uh, beforehand it was, there was only one party. And now, to some extent, there's a, a dissenting party. And there are people, I think, within the U.S., the backer, people backing Trump, who... Um, for one reason or another, want to try and wrest some control of the governance of America away from these kind of backroom 
deep state securocrat civil servant type people who basically have been running the country for for quite a long time and they're they want to go in a different direction and they're claiming authority the authority of the office of the president to do so which is bizarre because that's not what you're meant to do the uh, office of the president is basically just a figurehead and you're meant to just rubber stamp as president rubber stamp everything that the deep state does for a president to come in and say okay so i have all this power i'm going to use it here's what i want to do uh no so uh and that's where the conflict comes from but there are people, it seems, what's surprising to me is that there are, there's enough people uh, within the American political establishment who think the same way as Trump, who actually support that kind of a you know, take, back, take back the power type thing from these people, you know. And I'm sure it's all just on, basically, ultimately, it's just two personal interests uh, vying for control, you know. I mean, there's nothing necessarily good about what Trump and his people and the people behind him want to do necessarily. It might be a bit better than than the way things have been going but certainly we're not looking at the end of corruption and a golden age for america you know we're just witnessing a basically like a cage fight you know a political cage fight that's the best description upf upfc ultimate political (laughs) fighting championship It's it's not like this this other faction doesn't want to stop being the elites. They most definitely want to keep the, being the elites. But I've I've seen it characterized as those who want to be elite through America first, rebuilding the power, having all of their you know domestic uh, you know all of their power base be domestically based, as opposed to a globalist agenda, which is where all countries just become vassals to this one overarching supernatural not supernationalistic organization mm-hmm. but it's it's this is not a goodness of their heart situation at all it's just changing the configuration of your elitehood yeah i think so, i think there you go it's a kind of the the trump people the only thing positive thing i would say about them in a certain sense is is that they are they're not they're not taken or they don't come from the the rarefied atmosphere or the rarefied uh, world of the reality creators, and these are the kind of uh, the people who've been in power that I'm talking about, and their and their front men uh, from the Bush administration, for example, the neocons, Karl Rove, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, Paul Wolfowitz, Dick Cheney, and all the rest of them. And then that segued into the Obama administration officials. Many of the same ones from 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 Bush behind the scenes being in the under the Obama administration. Those those are the the reality creator types. They were the ones who, uh, as Carl Rove said, you know, that journalist Ron Suskind, you know, basically we create reality. You know, it's like whatever we want, whatever we imagine to be true, that's what's going to happen. That's what we make. People think that, you know, that reality just happens from cause and effect. You know, something happens and then everybody in the world has to wait to see, oh, I wonder what will happen as a result of that or try and figure out what's the most likely thing to happen as a result of that, you know, X happening, what then will happen as a result based on, on cause and effect, you know, as, uh, as you would expect it to. But they're like, no, that's not the way it happens. We just make it up. We just, whatever we, you know, there's no, there's no obvious connection between these things. It's, we just make them up as we go along. He was effectively uh, admitting to uh, kind of conspiracies, to political conspiracies. You know, that um, that that things are created, that consp- that stuff doesn't doesn't just happen as a as a matter of cause and effect in the world. That it's actually conspired, or, or people conspire together to create things that that don't logically make any sense or that wouldn't normally naturally have happened otherwise except that we made them happen because we create reality 
And I think people in the Trump campaign, in the Trump uh, camp, and people behind him are the ones who have seen how that has gone, seen what it is doing in the world, seen how it, most importantly, has been hurting America, and have said, you know, that's not a good way to go about things, because especially in the context of of the 21st century and our, our, the rise of Russia and the rise of China and the rise of India and the rise of all these other countries, not only economically but also militarily, that we can't continue to do this because we're going we're gonna to destroy ourselves ultimately if we try and push in this way uh, that, that we could do in the 20th century when most of these other countries were kind of far below us. But now that they're coming up to the same level, we can't follow the same strategy of just whatever we say goes, my way or the highway, you better do it, Buster, or I'll bomb the crap out of you. That's not going to work anymore because they'll bomb the crap out of us back and they have the capability to do that and to stop us at every turn from, from really uh, encroaching on their, on their interests and their space. So it's a realist view that the, to a certain extent that the, the Trump camp have taken. They're saying, listen, we're not saying America shouldn't be first and, and we, should, we shouldn't do everything that will make America the, or continue to make America a great nation and blah, 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 and make us rich and wealthy and all that kind of stuff and create jobs, blah, blah, blah. But we have to do it in the context or, or in full recognition of the reality that opposes us out there. And that is the one thing that makes a reality creator go bonkers and pee his pants and get his niggers in a twist and really hate you. What do you mean we can't do it? It's like John, John McCain, you know, when the two, the general and what was his name? General uh, Dumford. Dumford and Ash Carter were sitting there and saying, yeah, you can't have a no-fly zone in Syria um, because Syria already has one. And McCain's like, really? Can't have a no-fly zone in Syria? Why not? Why can't we have one? We're America. Just put the goddamn no-fly zone there. We are America. Do it. <laughs> Dumford, you idiot. Just do it. You know, this is America we're talking about. Put the no-fly zone. Russia, whatever. Just do it. That's the kind of idiot that you have in John McCain, the people around him and the reality creators. And they would just, that that's the policy they would follow to their own, well, not to their destruction, but to the serious uh, the creation of serious problems for not, for military men uh, on the on the front line, and then economic problems from America on the uh, you know behind it, you know following on, and they don't give a crap because it's like we're America, do it. That's that's their policy basically. They're, they're just so consumed with their own with the belief that they rule the world and whatever they want to happen should happen because it's us. And those people are, are bad news. And I think in that sense, Trump with a little bit more of a realistic take on things, is that's why he's a better choice. But, of course, people, the Clinton, Clintonistas and all the people, deluded people who have no idea about what, how, you know, it's not even how the world really works. It's, it's, it's how the world works. I mean, it's not even a, a mystery. It's not a conspiracy. It's not some deep, dark, scary kind of reality behind. It's just how the world obviously would work if you would only think about it for a minute and not and come away from moo-moo-la-la land with unicorns and dancing Black presidents on what's her face Ellen's on show. Ellen's show. Jesus Christ! Just look at the way the world normally works, like with normal human psychology. Okay, albeit pathological to some extent, but you can allow for that because you know some pathological people in your life, right? You know people. There's some bad people out there. They do greedy things. Well, just apply that normal human psychology to 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 politics and what's going on in the world. Like people tell lies. You know, when you're not getting your way, you you kind of try and get your way by hook or by crook. You try and do, you might engage in some dirty dirty deals to get your way. Allow all of that for your politicians, right? And then you start to understand how the world works. But they've been so immersed in this 
moo-moo social justice, humanitarian intervention, freedom and democracy world for so long, when you just tell them the basics of human psychology, like, no, look, this is just the way the world works. It should be obvious. It's just normal human psychology. They, they, they burst into tears. No, it can't be that way. Jesus Christ, mm. you know? Yeah. It wasn't that hard for us to figure out what's really going on in Syria, for example. No. It's not, it's not so, rocket science, hang people. On, hang on, let me follow it up. And yet it's a complicated mess that, oh my God, I can't even, where do I even begin to understand for a lot of people? It's not really that it's a complicated mess and you can't understand it. What you can understand is that all of that would have been done killing a half million people and sending another six million dislocated across borders. What you can't understand that is that there are people who would create, do all that unintentionally just because they wanted their pipeline their way. Yeah. The dispute wasn't even over whether or not there would be a pipeline. No. But just exactly how it would be managed. Right. And make sure that we get all... That's, that's where people are like, but no, 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 that can't be. A half a million people died for that issue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, but if you, yeah. put, if, you put a big, if you put a big truckload of cash behind it as well, then you can understand as well. You mightn't like it, but you can understand that if there's a big truckload of cash for me at stake... That someone would say, yeah, let those half million people die. Because, well, I don't know them. The price, Madeleine Albert said, well, yeah, the price is worth it. Exactly. So, you know, that's how the world works. And it's not, like I said, it's not rocket science. It's not, but people just don't want to. They've been encouraged to believe in, in dancing unicorns on rainbows uh, for so long that they just have lost the ability to even just be, even to accept or to apply fairly normal human psychology to world events. Anyway. And on that note. <laughs> yeah? Is that a good note? <laughs> it's a great note. I think that's a good note. note. Dancing mm-hmm. unicorns and rainbows? Yeah, that's the note. That's the high note. Yeah, I just see. remember the dancing <laughs> unicorns and rainbows. All right. Well, maybe we'll leave it there then for this week. Yeah, we've got, we'll reach the top of the, top of the hour almost. So, um, yeah, unless there's anything else, we'll, uh, we'll call it quits. We'll let everybody go and stop annoying them with our ranting um, yeah so thanks to our listeners and to our chatters we hope you enjoyed the show uh, thanks to Stephen for calling in and thanks to y'all Neil and Harrison Karen Corey we'll be back next week with another show until then hope you all have a good evening goodbye see you next week bye everybody bye bye take care